Hey everyone, well, welcome to Stutter Talk at, at episode 703 for January 31st, 2021. To, to, today we will be discussing what is new and exciting in stuttering with our guest, our return guest, Dr. Nan Bernstein Ratner. Well, welcome Dr. Bernstein Ratner. Well, thank you. It's just great to be back. And I cannot believe that it's been more than 700 shows. It's really a tremendous testimony to all you've been doing over the years. And I'm just thrilled to be back. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Dr. Nan Bernstein-Ratner is a professor in the Department of Hearing and Speech Sciences at the University of Maryland College Park and a fellow and honors recipient of the American Speech Language and Hearing Association. Dr. Bernstein-Ratner is co-author of the seminal publication, A Handbook on Stuttering, which will be published around June in its seventh edition. Nan has co-authored A Handbook of Stuttering with the late uh, Oliver Bloodstein and with new co-author Shelley Brundage. Nan, one researcher I know who just read and reviewed an advanced copy of your book told me, quote, the book is massive. I think it remains the best reference for stuttering research. That's pretty high praise, right? Well, I'm thrilled. I, I'm very flattered. We just tried to do good work and make uh, information about stuttering more accessible to not just researchers, but people who stutter their families. We also find that even medical personnel consult it fairly frequently. And so we're just trying to make a book that gets the facts out there as best we understand them. Mm, and it sure does. So for today's conversation, I want to let the listeners know that usually on Stutter Talk, if we mention something like Lidcomb or the Demands and Capacities model, we explain what it is. Today, we're not going to do that because we'd spend the entire episode explaining what everything is. <laughs> so for this episode, <laughs> yes, make good use of Google. So uh Please know that uh, if you don't know what something means, please Google it uh, and keep listening. Uh, so Nan, the previous edition of A Handbook of Stuttering was published 14 years ago in 2007, the same year we launched Stutter Talk. George W. Bush was president. This was several years before iPads and iPhones had been invented. A lot has changed since then in the world and in stuttering. So let's dive in. Since 2007, Nan, what advancements have you found to be the most surprising or interesting in stuttering? Oh, God, there are so many. Um, we apologize also for the book taking so long to get to press. A number of publishers didn't really want it in its prior format and in the format we wanted to keep it in. It's really a handbook. It's meant to be a reference book. And an awful lot of publishers are trying to sell textbooks to students. So we, uh, we had a lot to cover. And in that regard, there are a lot of different things that are exciting. And I think um, in our conversations before the show, you've laid out some areas that you want to be sure that we touch on. But um, I think that one of the areas I might start with, because it seems to be a chronic um, topic of conversation on your show, is treatment of preschool stuttering. And there's been a lot of work uh, recently, kind of work that probably couldn't have been done in, in previous years. Um, for instance, the Dutch were able to hold a huge randomized clinical trial, which most, uh, well, 
American um, facilities could not really do. We don't have health departments that could arrange that for us. But anyhow, they they compared two different forms of early treatment for uh, children who stutter and and found, this was the take-home message I took from it, that multiple therapies may be equally effective, which I take as good news. There's another less positive reading on it, which is that we've yet to discover an effective treatment. And I say that because after a year of treatment, neither the Dutch um, demands or capacities model or Lidcomb therapy actually wound up producing more children who didn't stutter than spontaneous recovery rates have been reported to be. So they were kind of tied. Um, But I do prefer the first reading that probably more than one thing works uh, for different people or different families because in my own life, and I'm getting to be older than dirt, um, I've never seen one treatment for anything that works for everybody, everybody, either in medicine or education or in any walk of life. So um, I think that's exciting because it gives us, I'm an optimist generally, and I think that it's just really fascinating uh, to consider that we have more options than we think we've had. Most people always seem to feel that we have so few, and I tend to think that we have many. The big problem is getting the right treatments to work with the right people and may be administered by the right therapists. So that's one thing that I thought was very interesting. So let me ask you this, and I don't want it to sound snarky, but are, are you saying that the Dutch study found that the two of the major preschool stuttering treatments, demands and capacities, and Lidcomb are equally effective or equally ineffective? I mean, is that kind of what you're saying? Well, I think you can see it that way. You can see it either way, depending upon whether or not you're a pessimist. There may be a function of age going on there, too, um, that at the um, age at which kids were enrolled in these programs, the rates of spontaneous recovery probably dipped below 80%. But that's sort of what was going on. They had had children who responded within a year of of start of treatment to the point where they, they, about 70 five or more, 78% of the kids were more fluent um, as one of the outcomes. That sort of does put it in one of these interesting realms, you know, is the program working, are the programs working equally well, or is neither program working any better than just waiting? But I think we're going to, you know, this this is recent data, and I think that we're going to be able to get a better handle on things um, in the future as people see those data and decide they're going to dig in and figure out what the right answer is more likely to be. So a very quick follow-up to that is that we've had people on Stutter Talk who have discussed the same topic and they've said in their opinion that preschoolers who stutter who are entered into a treatment program may have less of a chance of recovery than children whose parents do not feel the need to enroll them in a treatment program. Do you, What does the data and the evidence tell us about that? Well, in a recent study we did with the Purdue team, the first author is Katie Leach, um, we did find that some other factors were more predictive of whether or not children outgrew stuttering than whether or not they had therapy at all. So there there may be something to it, but I think it's a complicated question and certainly not about whether or not children who get therapy don't get better. I think it's that certainly some parents may wait a while to take children to therapy and that's uh, going to make them older um, and still stuttering, which is obviously not a good sign of spontaneous recovery. We know that from a number of studies. Probably also parents with more severe 
children with more severe symptoms may be taken to therapy more often. Now, that's one where it doesn't make sense to make that particular observation because we, we actually know, surprisingly enough, that in multiple studies, the severity of stuttering does not predict whether or not children will act grow. So I think there's, you know, it's an interesting observation. It, it, I think it may be tied up in a lot of things that would be difficult to sort out, but I certainly, if the argument is that we'd rather see that these programs both work better than spontaneous recovery. I, I would, I would go with that as an optimist. Um, but, but I have to caution that, you know, it's again, reading, not just the abstract of an article, but reading the entire content and seeing the actual numbers that uh, certainly made me wonder what we were really looking at. And I think we'll find out more in the future, but right now it's still a possibility that we have yet to discover um, a treatment that is amazingly better than spontaneous recovery. And I love when the data you discuss uh, resembles real life, because I have worked with a number of preschoolers who stutter quite a lot, and they've recovered. So I've seen in real life what you're saying. So, so Nan, in a handbook of stuttering, what is new in the area of predictors of recovery from early stuttering and what they may be telling us about the disorder of stuttering? Yeah, um, this is just such a hot topic. So many people are, are using data from some very ambitious studies to try and answer this question. I'm going to concentrate on the two studies I'm most familiar with, um, one set that's done at um, Purdue University and the other at the University of Michigan, but I want to note that they're not the only people working on this particular problem space. And not all of the things that they're discovering are equally usable by clinicians. Um, so for instance, the Michigan team, which consists of Dr. Suen Chang and her colleagues, is definitely finding neuroanatomical neuro- markers of persistence and recovery uh, using brain imaging. And some of them are highly sophisticated. I think that the message from their work is mainly to reduce uh, some level of parental anxiety about whether or not they've influenced somehow with the onset of recovery from stuttering. Um, The Purdue team is, is trying to say to do some pretty ambitious modeling to try and weight and combine a lot of different sources of information that they've gathered on this question. And the take-home message, and, and I know that they still have some stuff in, in uh, review and in press, the take-home message is that it's really pretty complicated and involves a number of systems of, of human function. And people who are interested, your listeners should search for publications that include Christine Weber, Bridget Walsh, and other people from the uh, Purdue University team. Among their findings are that, as we know, family history plays a role, but it's not um, it's not as strong as some other factors that we can measure clinically. So surprisingly, in a few studies now, children's skills in both expressive language, receptive language, and articulation and phonology seem to factor in uh, to whether or not they spontaneously outgrow stuttering. And if that's true, and it seems to work in a couple of different studies conducted in different places, that certainly makes stuttering much more complicated a disorder than we thought it was a few years ago. It involves more systems. A lot of people used to think of stuttering as mainly just a motor coordination or speech motor disorder. Um, but it clearly involves um, children's abilities in other areas of communication. It also, interestingly enough, and this also then verges into an area that clinicians may not find very usable in the near future, but their studies also reflect differences in how the child 
appears to process language in the brain, what kinds of brain responses we can elicit using techniques like event-related potentials or where in the brain things are being processed or how quickly in the brain things are being processed. And that is really different for many of us because It implies that part of what we view as the disorder of stuttering, which seems so much to be a disorder of expression and talking, is accompanied by some atypicalities in how people are actually listening to language and understanding language as they are engaged in communication. So I have to ask you the chicken and the egg follow-up <laughs> question to that is, is it possible that the differences you're seeing are a response to stuttering? And I'm sorry to complicate it, but that's the question. Yeah, I, I'm positive we're going to find out that some of them are. For instance, a very early finding uh, from some brain imaging studies was that people who stutter don't seem to listen to themselves very as much as um were typically fluent people do when they talk. And this was work done on adults. And I can certainly imagine that a person who's lived listening to their own stuttering for a long time would start to tune it out. Um, And that is among my candidates for something that might clearly be learned rather than a cause of the disorder. But it's really hard. And, And one of the problems with studying stuttering is that it is unique among communication disorders. It is not there from the beginning of learning to talk as far as we can tell. It only really becomes apparent when kids are about two and a half to three years of age. And studying two to three-year-olds, well, you're a parent, you know, that's like, um, you know, they're just not the world's best or most easily tested individuals. Um, If I had the world to rearrange, I'd have stuttering be like language impairment or articulation disorders and be there from the beginning because then we would have some idea whether or not a baby, for instance, who is going to develop stuttering symptoms processes language differently even before they talk. I don't think we're there. It's not impossible to imagine we would get there. But right now, we just don't know how to answer that chicken or egg situation very well. This is Stutter Talk. I am Peter Reitzes here with Dr. Nan Bernstein. Ratner, who is a co-author on the soon-to-be-updated A Handbook of Stuttering, coming out in July in its seventh impressive edition. Nan, I'm going to ask you a question in just a second, but a reviewer of your handbook um, told me that the book really shines in its discussion of treatment. And he went on to say, the focus is on common factors and takes seriously issues of long-term change, relapse, and the physical mental burden of some therapy techniques. It is critical of fluency-only approaches. Again, that's some pretty high praise, and you can respond to any of that, but let me first ask a question. What is new in the role of people who stutter in deciding what therapeutic success looks like? And very related, what is new in the area of neurodiversity and the social model of disability? Hmm. I'm not sure that some aspects of this question are new, 
but certainly there's been a sea change across health over the past decade in putting more of an emphasis on patient and client-centered care. It sort of reminds me of the argument about evidence-based practice. What is its opposite? You know, I don't know what the opposite of patient or client-centered care is, but it might be said to be clinician-centered care. And I think in some cases we have that. Um, And I personally, as as somebody who goes to allied health professionals myself, I I don't enjoy that notion. I don't think we let practitioners decide what is good for somebody who's coming for treatment. Um, We should be asking what people want, and very importantly, we should be offering them options rather than dictums. So in that sense, both uh, patient and client-centered care is welcome, um, that we want to involve people. It tends to work better if you involve the patient or client in agreeing not only on how to go about things, but what to what to treat. Um, And so I just think it's basically good science and psychology has been there well ahead of us to figure that out. The neurodiversity movement is very, very welcome in my mind. Um, The world is too, the world is too heterogeneous for us to force people into a single model of what it is to be successful at communication. I think where this gets a little bit tricky is I have heard people challenge uh, certainly some of my colleagues. I had a, a long conversation with one of, one of my research colleagues just in the past couple of weeks that maybe the neurodiversity movement means no therapy or no research um, in stuttering. I think that neurodiversity is a position one can take um, later in a person's uh, maturational development. I think we still need to figure out how to make children who stutter more comfortable and less frustrated when they get stuck. I'm not sure that any teenager has ever really thought that neurodiversity is a great idea because they're stuck on wearing the same clothes as their classmates. And I don't find neurodiversity to be in conflict with doing basic science on what creates that neurodiversity or how to help people who don't identify as either being neurodiverse or wanting to be neurodiverse. Um, I think in the end, neurodiversity has to be about choices that people can make and choices should be as well-informed as possible. But I think that between the neurodiversity movement and the rise of patient-centered care, I think we're going to get much more informed and then hopefully much more effective and rewarding treatment for people who come and seek treatment for stuttering. Yeah, I'm remembering when we started Stutter Talk, I I still do say this. I would say things like, it's okay to stutter and it's okay to change how you talk if you want to talk more easily. And people thought it was radical to say it's okay to stutter. Uh, And now sometimes I get hit with, I can't believe you say it's okay to want to change how you talk. And (laughs) so, and I was like, well, yeah. And it's like, well, well, it's really frustrating to not be able to get my words out. So I do want to have some confidence in my ability to move forward in speech. Uh, so it's challenging to be outflanked on my left, you know, um, but uh, it, it does happen. So uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think every person who stutters wants the same things. And I, I just think our job is not to tell people what they want. It's to listen uh, to what they tell us they want. Certainly in some cases, um, our clients don't know what's possible for them to want. Um, and so that 
that makes it ever more important for us to lay out some options for people. And that's true even in patient-centered care is that patients have to know what their options are before they can feel well-informed making decisions. This is Stutter Talk. Our guest today is Dr. Nan Bernstein Ratner. We're talking about the updated version of a handbook of stuttering, soon to be in its seventh edition. Nan, is there one thing you want to share with us that's new in adult stuttering treatment? In adult stuttering treatment, um, I think the main thing that you might have uh, already touched on would be, um, I think, the, the, the greater acknowledgement of um, patient-centered um, treatment goals and treatment approaches. Um, uh, I've even seen work, um, and we do cover this, from a person uh, in our field who often has very strong feelings about what the desired outcomes of adult speech-language therapy should look like for stuttering, admitting that patients themselves should start defining what um, a successful context um, for treatment outcomes should look like. So I think that's the big thing. Um, We haven't seen a whole lot of new things come along in treatment for adults. Some of the things that were popular the last time around seem to have been slipping and sliding into the Um, background. So, uh, for instance, um, back when we did the last edition, um, use of the speech easy to try and induce fluency in adults who stutter was a very hot topic. These days, there's not a whole lot of publication about it. It seems to be that many of the the trials that were administered find the device useful on some occasions for some people, but it is not a not a quick fix, and it's not a permanent fix um, for any adults that we know of um, who stutter. Likewise, I think that the promise of technology with apps and and things that people who stutter can use to practice, adults who stutter can practice with, they seem to be premised again on the notion that all that people who stutter want is not to stutter as much and. Um, as such, they, they really can't be very nuanced. You can't depend upon an app to give you deep understanding of a very multifaceted human condition. And so I, I think that, in a sense, what's new in adult stuttering therapy is old stuttering therapy. Well, so I, I was, yeah, I, I was going to, I'm sorry to cut you off, but so when I, I read your treatment chapter, I paid very close attention to the Charles Van Riper stuff because that stuff changed my life. And you beautifully explain what a pull, pull, pull out is. You beautifully explain the importance of when some people use can't, can't, can't cancellations, cancellations like I just showed you. And that stuff changed my life. And then you say, I'm sorry to oversummarize it here, but you basically say, and we don't have, have much new research in this area. So, it's like this really important stuff, but do we have an increased evidence base of using it, but it's still really important? Well, it's it's like sort of demanding that a sports camp demonstrate that within the course of um, a certain number of visits, you are, will become an expert soccer player, for instance. Stuttering involves so many systems that it's not surprising that an approach that really wants to work on things from so many different angles, like becoming desensitized to your stuttering, like analyzing it deeply, like learning how to respond to it in more productive ways, that these are not skills that are going to be easy to teach um, in a very small 
um, period of time. And I think that in some senses, when we when we contrast these so-called fluency shaping therapies and the intensive ones work really well at changing behavior uh, over the short term, and then we try and contrast them with uh, older approaches like stuttering modification, uh, Van Riper kinds of approaches, we're kind of comparing such different pedagogical and intervention approaches that it's not quite fair. It's not a level playing field. One is expected to take, one would expect uh, some of these to take much more time than others. So, you know, it is sort of the difference between maybe a crash course in learning to speak a language and then actually learning to speak the language the way people really use it within a culture. And so, I, I think that they're not incompatible approaches to stuttering. And one of our goals was to um, point out um, how they work and that they work differently and to get people to understand that they probably can't, um, these types of therapies can't all be evaluated within the same finite time span and using the same outcome determinants. Well, so much on the table here. There have been several things, Nan, that have really changed my life in stuttering. And, and I don't know how you measure it, um, but it's certainly evidence. So when my speech therapist, when I was graduating from college, Phil Schneider, when I met him for the first time and he said to me, I see you're trying to hide your stuttering and it's okay to stutter here. You know, it still tears me up. It changed my life. Uh, another moment, um, not as grand, but really important was I remember visiting my parents and laying on the couch and reading a Van Riper book on stuttering treatment. And at one point, Van Riper is talking about how the mouth gets stuck and it could be helpful to think about the next sound you have to make. And, oh, you have to open your mouth to make the vowel sound. So open your mouth. And I just remember thinking, wow, I can actually, instead of being scared, I can look at my stuttering and change how I'm talking. And like, I don't know how you measure that, but I'll never be the same, you know, once I realized I could think about my speech. Well, I think that um, Walt Manning um, has said that he finds a lot of parallels between sports psychology and sports training uh, for elite sports players and stuttering therapy, that you have to have the ability to get very analytical. But in order to get very analytical, you have to be dispassionate. You can't be worried about, for instance, the score in the game or whether or not people pass you the puck enough or things like that. And I think that, um, you know, stuttering therapy in my mind strikes me a lot like that. And that's why, again, I contrast very often um, going to intensive fluency shaping experiences as like going to a sports camp. You will get some skill improvement, um, but whether or not it's going to make a difference in your life and your overall ability to do things well is going to require a lot of extension into everyday practice. And we'll have to run up against how you feel about using those skills, how easy they are to use, how well you understand them, how um, how many things get in the way of your using those skills, such as being unwilling um, to show your stuttering or being um, disturbed by speaking in front of other people and so on and so forth. So I, I think that I like the analogy of sports uh, therapy or sports coaching because it really does include so many different areas of our function. Um, and makes it clear why it would be very a very long time before many people who stutter become so comfortable with their stuttering and what they can do to um, change it and make their speech more uh, comfortable for themselves, that it's not something we expect to happen in a year's worth of therapy in a school. Mm. So I, I want to ask you 
questions about uh, updates on brain imaging, on genetics, but let me first ask you about covert stuttering. So a friend of mine who reviewed your book and really liked it, uh, he shared with me that there's not very much on covert stuttering and passing as fluent in a handbook on stuttering. Um, And he says, but I don't think it's the author's fault. There simply isn't much research on these topics. So Nan, how do you view the issue of passing as fluent? And and to be clear, I mean, those who stutter, um, like myself, who for the most part, I was able to completely hide my stuttering from the public. That was, of course, until I couldn't anymore. But for my first tw- for my first twenty years, I did a pretty good job of it, and then it started breaking down in my early twenties. But to be clear, I mean those of us who really could hide our stuttering. Yeah. So when we wrote the last edition of the handbook, there were all of two papers on covert stuttering, and they'd been written in the nineteen fifties. Now there are a few more, but I think what's held everything back is this notion about what is success um, in dealing with stuttering as an individual. So I think that until people who stutter more covertly make it clear that that is not, in fact, a desirable way of living, that it does cause um, distress, that it does get in the way of doing things that people want to do, then we are still going to have people who don't stutter, for instance, thinking, or even some people who do stutter thinking, well, you know, what's your problem, right? What's wrong with stuttering covertly? Um, So I think part of it is the unfortunate kind of melding of a lack of research, but also a lack of of push to do the research. I find myself very fascinated by covert stuttering because you know that I come from a fairly languagey background. And it seems to me that people who are able to sort of see their stuttering on the horizon and swap words around are, number one, able to forecast their stuttering in pretty interesting ways. And number two, they must be very verbally adept. And I think can think of some very easy studies to test that hypothesis. But I, I, I do agree that there is not enough on covert stuttering in this book. We apologize. We did not. We pulled out references from this handbook, over a thousand of them that were not uh, peer reviewed. They were not published. And we couldn't find too many new articles that have been peer reviewed that talked about covert stuttering. It's my hope significantly that this will change before the next edition. I know that Jill Douglas is working on this um, area, and um, I know that other people are interested in it. And I want to say, it's uh, to me, it's important and it needs to be done. Um, and I certainly aspire to have more things to report on in the next edition. And it's certainly not your fault. I mean, this is a tough area. I remember uh, in the days that I could travel to National Stuttering Association conferences before I had children, I remember being at a dinner table and the woman next to me she she's we said hello and she's like yeah i know who you are i kind of never wanted to meet you because i <laughs> i <laughs> right isn't that great and she oh, said because be, because i also passed as fluent and it's so painful and i read your story and it's my story and it's so painful i don't even want to look at it yeah and why 
why that pain can't impel more research into what's going on is something I don't yet understand. But I, if there's any way that I can help facilitate it, I will let you know that um, as a researcher, one of my usual barriers is finding research participants. If there are people out there um, who would like to see research done on covert stuttering and want to chat with me about ways to do that, I am more than happy to chat with them. Hmm. Awesome. So what are the updates since 2007 that you'd like to share regarding brain imaging studies? So the biggest changes I think have been enabled by new technology. And uh, the new technology is, is able to go inside the living brain and get pretty deep inside of it to figure out what might be different, not only in the brains of adults who stutter and don't stutter, but in the brains of children who stutter and recover and in the brains of children who stutter or don't. And I think what's really changed is, and it's been grounded in what we understand about the brain in general, so it's not that people in stuttering uh, really did this in a vacuum, but that the brain is not does not consist of discreetly organized areas that each function like transistors such that perhaps stuttering is an area of the brain that's just not doing its job properly. What we found is we're now able to image connections among brain regions and that there are anatomical markers of both excess activity and decreased connectivity among brain regions. Going back into childhood and in fact uh, differentiating children who persistently stutter from those who grow out of stuttering. And those differences are sort of uh, reasonable in the sense that the children who recover show differences from children who never stuttered that are intermediate between uh, the brains of children who continue to stutter. So there's sort of a continuum there that makes good sense. The other thing that's really important that technology has helped us with is that we're able to get below the level of the cortex more readily and examine deeper areas of the brain. And as we do that, we're able to see differences in subcortical regions of uh, the brains of people who stutter. Um, And I think this area is just going to explode. Writing the chapter on the brain and stuttering was the most fearful of all the tasks I undertook. And it took me months. And uh, my house was flooded by publications. Even trying to put some of that information into table format took months to do because we had to look at hundreds of articles and try and reduce them down to common features. Um, So if I didn't do a great job, I'm going to apologize in advance. But I did find some articles that I found really, really well written. They helped me conceptualize things better. Uh, One that I can recommend that people might want to look at um, is uh, written by Sue Chan and Frank Gunther. It appears in Frontiers in Psychology, and it's available on Google Scholar. You can just bring it down for free. What I liked about it is that it was written in a fairly accessible way, and it used a lot of diagrams uh, to uh, at least present a hypothetical view of stuttering that made some sense to me. And so that would be one article that I might recommend for people to take a look at if they want to, um, if they have insomnia <laughs> and mm. want to read something uh, somewhat serious about stuttering, uh, but very informative. Yeah. And we get occasional emails asking us to get back on air to Dr. Su Yang Chang. So she, uh, yeah, she's great. Yeah. She really yeah. is. Yeah.
Very related is, do we know anything new about the brains of people who stutter after speech therapy? Yeah, we've known uh, that people's brains don't look quite the same after speech therapy for quite some time. I think going back before the year 2000, actually, we did cover it in the last edition of the handbook. And I, I do remember showing some pretty interesting pictures of CAT scans, uh, PET scans, I'm sorry, PET scans uh, that were generated by the team at Toronto, Luke Danil. Uh, and Bob Kroll. So we do know that activity changes after therapy. We should probably be amazed if it didn't. We actually know, although we don't have good information specific to stuttering, that brain physiology can change after uh, life experience, which is a tremendously hopeful thing uh, to understand. The classic example of this is that um, people who take up juggling actually grow visual spatial areas of the brain. Um, and um, it wouldn't be surprising to us to find that even anatomical tracks or connectivity would change uh, in people who undergo therapy over long periods of time that are also accompanied by behavioral change. And certainly attitude change would even have its own impacts on the brain and its activity. One of the things I remember from the earlier work is that when people are first trying to talk differently, if they've been in things like a fluency shaping therapy, there's an awful lot of excess activity in the brain because people are concentrating on how they talk fairly acutely, and it's actually causing a lot of extra activity in the brain. One of the things we look for here is long-term change in brain activity. So after these new skills become a little bit more uh, natural to use, require a little bit less attention, then what we do find is that in many of these reports, brain activity, quote, normalizes, which is to say that it starts to look more like the brain activity of people who don't stutter at all. Mm. The brain is such a weird thing. My my wife bought me a classical gu guitar because my last one broke. And I pulled out some sheet music that I hadn't looked at since college, since like the late 90s. And my hands remembered how to play some of it. Um yeah, I mean, our brain has a lot of storage capacity and it Actually, has memory for experiences and activities yeah. that we just store up over long periods of time. It's great. Yeah, and it's so weird because I was playing a passage and I remembered some of it. I didn't remember some of it. So I relearned parts of it. And then all of a sudden, because on a guitar, you can play things the same notes in different ways. And all of a sudden, I'm playing it the way I played it in 1997. Yeah, so. So weird. Yeah. Yeah, so that weirdness, by the way, I think is part of what we don't understand about treatment results. You know, when we take, um, uh, you know, a 10-year-old or a 30-year-old and we, we involve them in stuttering therapy, um, we shouldn't be surprised that it takes a while to overturn some of that muscle memory and some of that affective response to things. So an awful lot of learning that we do as we grow requires us to unlearn how we do things. And that's, of course, something that happens in sport, sports uh, coaching as well, is that very often if you've engaged in any sort of sports coaching, um, I've had a lot of failed uh, coaching for both tennis and skiing. Um, the first thing they do is they try and unwork some of the things you've learned to do that are clearly not productive. And so I think that, that this notion that our brain keeps hold of old orientations towards activities is part of what therapy faces as a challenge. How do you weaken those old connections and replace them with behavior that is more conducive to what the, the, the client really wants out of therapy? 
It's it's so fascinating. Um, I not, I can remember learning a wrong note years ago, and I know I just kind of said it, and relearning it now, and then all of a sudden I'm playing that same wrong note, <laughs> and it's like I my body still remembers it. It's just I still make some of the conven- same conventional typos when I you know I type half my day, and um, I still make some very very predictable typos, including on my own last name, which some people might find fitting, but I can't tell you how many times I have to mm. type over Ranter as opposed to. Ratner when I'm when I'm typing. So. Wow, I thought it was just me. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> uh, all right, this is, this is Stutter Talk. Our guest today is Dr. Nan Bernstein Ratner, who is a professor in the Department of Hearing and Speech Sciences at the University of Maryland College Park and co-author of a handbook on stuttering, soon to be in its seventh edition. Nan, since 2007, what's new and exciting in genetics and stuttering? So here it was less for me about what people were finding than how they fit into a larger picture. The big person who's been doing most of the work over the years in one way or another have been, uh, there are people associated with Dennis Drainus. Dennis Drena's lab at NIH. And when people start laying out some of the genetic findings, um, I don't know about your listeners, but after a while, all the letters start to jumble in my head. Yeah. One of the things that was impressive to me about this body of work is that we're getting to the point where we can, we understand enough about genetics to understand what particular genes do. And what was nifty recently, and it's very recently, as as recent as 2019 and 2020, that a team of uh, folks um, identified genes that were different um, between people who stutter and don't stutter, but also noticed that what they code for is exactly what was being uncovered as a difference in the work that Sue and Chang was carrying out in Michigan. So, for instance, um, both in mice and human studies, one of the areas that was showing up as distinct with relationship to stuttering genes is the corpus callosum. It turns out that the genetic differences that were being targeted make themselves manifest in what's um, what people are calling differences in astrocyte activity in the corpus callosum. And the astrocytes are a type of cell that are really important in the development of white matter tracts. And they also provide nutritional support to neurons. They uh, play a role in synaptic transmission, repairing the central nervous system, uh, recycling cellular waste, and a number of other things that are very, very important, if very, very daunting to describe easily. And so what was interesting to me was not that we were busy locating more and more genes, because we have located more genes. They're not always found in all people who stutter, and they don't account for a Uh, a a large proportion of stuttering, unfortunately, if we try and extend the work. But some of the genes that are being located seem to make sense, if we can sort of say that, in that they should lead to exactly the types of atypicalities in network uh, communication and connectivity that we're actually finding in the real people who stutter, which is, you know, I like it when things make sense. And uh, so what I like is when research in one area starts to actually make sense given research findings in another area. So pl- please don't take this as a challenging question because I'm trying to grapple with it. When I've had Dr. Dennis Strana on the show to talk about these topics, he'll, he shares your excitement and, but he'll say it like this, that he's so surprised to find 
uh, an issue in the lysosomal storage area. Like, so I, I, he's not saying it doesn't make sense, but do you see what I'm saying? Like, I, I yeah, well, that one is sense. particularly, yeah. yeah, that one's particularly troublesome, the lysosomal storage uh, business, because that's been out there for a little bit longer. <clears throat> and the reason why I can see his discomfort, and he mentions it whenever I talk to him, is that when you have um, genetic lysosomal lysosomal storage disorders, uh, they're not usually trivial in, in the general health sense. They can be quite fatal. And so the notion that something's going on um, in terms of lysosomal uh, storage, but it's not of a dimension that kills the speaker, but somehow... Um, has other effects on the maturation of other systems. That's what they're struggling to understand. And I think the newer research provides an avenue for that. And I don't know the last time you had uh, Dennis on, but this notion that they're finding essentially that these genes project to parts of the brain that we know are in fact different in uh, people who stutter and people who don't stutter is making more sense. Whether or not we can always figure out clearly what the role of this gene is in lysosomal storage and how do we get some people with such deficits in that pathway that they die as opposed to some people with some mutation in that pathway that they're healthy, but they don't speak the way other people do. That's, that's a tangle. And genetics basically has always been faced with that challenge that when you find differences in genes, that doesn't, your job's not done. You've got to try and figure out what's being coded by that gene that's somehow uh, doing different work now. And I think that's really, uh, for most disorders, that's really the challenge. It's not locating the genes. It's understanding what the heck they're doing. Hmm. So I want to ask you about a topic that's near and dear to your heart. Can you tell us about the Fluency Bank uh, and data sharing and why this is so important? Yeah. So I have to confess that all of this stuff goes back to my younger years when I was doing my doctoral work on child language acquisition and disorder. And by the 1980s, we were very blessed to have developed a culture of data sharing that was enabled by a project that's now called TalkBank, but back then was called the Child Language Data Exchange uh, System. And what people had begun to discover was that you could get a lot more research done a lot more quickly, more effectively, have stronger research results, and spend lots less money if people shared data from site to site. And sharing data from site to site sounds a lot like kumbaya, but it's also very difficult in order for data to be shareable. You have to come up with conventions for how the data should look and how they should be shared and then how are they going to be accessible. So I was very proud um, about five years ago that the U.S. Um, National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation allowed Brian McWinney at Carnegie Mellon University, who directs TalkBank, and me to set up a fluency bank. Like I said, even in other areas of communication sciences and disorders, people had been sharing data for many years, but the fluency community really was not into it. Uh, the aphasia bank has been around since the 1990s and has really advanced what we understand about aphasia, which was usually plagued by small studies, just like stuttering studies, few, few people, lots of diversity, and no way to go back and try and combine data. So we're very proud of Fluency Bank. It turns five this year. We're going to apply for some more funding, and we're hopeful that we'll get it. We have managed to curate two of the major studies in English um, that I've already 
talked about one of them, the Purdue study, and then most of your listeners know about the Illinois uh, Research Project, which was the other very large study that told us so much about pathways uh, that children take towards persistence and recovery and stuttering. We have um, we have preserved these data. We have curated them so that they can be combined with one another and other records from other studies. And uh, they are accessible to people now on the internet, and you can search uh, the data using free computer software. Uh, we've also used Fluency Bank to develop um, clinical assessment tools that make um, at least tracking fluency to the extent, extent that people want to do that a little bit easier and more accurate. And we've developed some tools that researchers can use to analyze um, language samples and speech samples from people who stutter more effectively. We've also developed teaching tools that we've gotten really good feedback on. And I feel particularly happy about this, even though it wasn't a function of the grant that we applied for. Uh, we started something called the Voices of People Who Stutter, uh, Children and Adults, and we also have a couple of people who clutter and we'd like to get some more. We wanted an opportunity for people who stutter um, to talk to the world about the experience of stuttering, to try and get at that problem that you alluded to earlier about getting getting the voices of what clients want to be a more a more tangible component of the therapy process. And so what we have right now is we have interviews from 36 um, English-speaking adults who stutter and about a dozen children who stutter um, out there. And a lot of classes are using the materials to get a better understanding of what people who stutter how they view their lived experience as people who stutter and what they might be looking for and not looking for in therapy. Um, and we, we think it will help future clinicians and future researchers. We want to expand that in the next phase Oh, just wildly. We need to have people who uh, are from different cultures, different language backgrounds, different lived experiences as people who stutter. For instance, we would love to see uh, people with more covert profiles. We would like to see people who've had um, very different um, life paths as a result of their stuttering or trying to live with their stuttering in a diverse set of circumstances. And so that's what we're going to be doing as we go into the next five years, hopefully. Um, and if anybody is interested in, in working with us on any of these aspects of Fluency Bank, either the research end or the teaching end, they should just uh, get in touch with me on email because I'm easy to, I'm easy to get on email. And as you know, I'm a pretty reasonable pen pal. Yes, yes, I, I do. So I have a comment and a question. The comment is, this is really great to hear about. I do think you missed the boat on one thing. I think a better name would have been Stutterbank, but well, you know. Yeah, well, actually, there's a reason for that, if I can digress for 30 seconds. And, and, I'm, and I have a <laughs> smile on my face for people yeah. who can't, yeah. Yeah, we've had that about the International Fluency Association, by the way, um, for different reasons. We actually, if you look at the Fluency Bank, it's actually out to discover how children learn to talk fluently, as well as to look at populations in which fluency seems more elusive. So actually, the Fluency Bank has, as its one of its most important goals, understanding 
stuttering, but it's also trying to figure out how people learn to talk as children and put things together without experiencing a lot of breakdown or repetition or revision. Um, and so we're also interested at Fluency Bank at looking at second language learners, bilinguals, um, people with language disorders. And so uh, the NIH uh, wanted us to take a more encompassing view. They knew, as we did, that a large part of it would be about stuttering. But it actually, in this case, it's not aspirational that we want people to be fluent talkers, but we do want to understand what allows anybody to be a fluent talker and what happens when people are not. Hmm. Uh, and my question is, and it's so cool that you have the data from the really important Illinois studies. When you say that you have the data, do you have written data or do you also have some of the audio and perhaps video data? Yeah, we have uh, audio and video data. Um, the With older data like that, all the data will be audio only for anybody who wants to consult it in the future. Um, that project was going on for so long um, that there was no way that they could have envisioned something like a Fluency Bank project. So we have very different uh, sort of public release conventions for data that are being gathered now where people sign consent forms like many people over the years have done with me, as opposed to um, researchers who are retiring and giving us their data um, to distribute to other people who can justify using them. So the other thing is that these data are not on the open internet. They're, they are password protected and you do have to apply and explain what you're going to do with the data. Um, that is not true for the teaching resources like the Voices Project. All of those people signed with enthusiasm that their data videos and transcripts could be up there on the web and used by anybody who wanted to look at them. Uh, but research data usually requires some other precautions. We still think it's important. We're busy trying to replicate some of the work done respectively by the Purdue team and the Illinois team to see if they come up with the same answers if you take the same question and look at a different group of kids. And I think that these kinds of replications and extensions are going to be very, very important going forward. We're also finding that some of the data are being used for reasons most of the researchers would never have guessed, and this has happened in the other talk banks. My own data has been used to look at speech recognition systems that can understand children. And in fact, we've already had requests for use of Fluency Bank data, both the open and closed data, to see if uh, people can develop speech recognition systems like Alexa that fare better when they're faced with people who are not typically fluent. You know, when people do research, they don't always know what the value of their own data are. And so uh, the talk bank initiatives have been showing over and over again for more than four decades that when when you combine data and 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 curate it, we make sure it doesn't wind up in dumpsters after all that work, yeah. um, that we learn a lot more uh, than we would otherwise. Has anyone gone back that you know of to look at data from published studies in a somewhat of a challenging way to say that they have a different take on the data or have different results or conclusions? It's interesting because um, when Childus came along in the early 1980s, that was exactly what a lot of potential donors were afraid of, is if I give my data, I'm going to find myself the object of an article that says I didn't get it right. For the most part, that's not happening. It's not necessarily the case that, that 
people come to the wrong conclusion out of data that they work with, usually the publication process tends to, peer review tends to make you think about those things. Um, And usually if there's more than one interpretation of your data, you're going to own up to that (laughs) when you publish an article. So I think that people are afraid to share data because they're afraid that folks will second guess them. That's not, over over almost four decades, we really haven't had that problem. I do think that what we see more often is that people will use the data in ways that the that the original researchers just never thought about. Hmm. I'll be very honest. Um, one of the things we're interested in is um, interaction, for instance, between parents and kids uh, who stutter and um, trying to unravel some of the claims that have been made over the years about what parents should or shouldn't do with their kids. And a number of the old research protocols that looked at children who stutter and their parents never even bothered to transcribe the parents. Wow. Do you have a thought about the future of stuttering? Is there one area that you imagine is going to be big in the next handbook of stuttering or that will be enlarged? I think that this thing about the human connectome, which we get into a little bit when we talk about how brain imaging has changed from looking at different areas to how they interact with one another, it's only a small step from the connectome as we look at the brain to the connectome as we look at the mind, which has, and that's been a topic for neurophysiology, neuropsychology, cognitive science for years. And I think we're going to get closer to understanding what it means for us as people that work in stuttering, that we've always tried to reduce stuttering to small, easily understandable cubby holes. And we're not going to be able to do that. And, and that's just a fact of life that the more we learn about the mind and the brain, that it is a complex interaction among things that we're born with and then experiences that we encounter and all of them interact with one another inescapably. So I think that we're, I'm hoping, and we tried to do this with the book, we're hoping more that stuttering places itself within um, the evolution of thinking about the brain and the mind rather than hunkering down and simply um, as some of my students do, simply whenever they want to understand something about stuttering, they they search stuttering. I think to understand stuttering, we're going to have to have a better notion of how human beings grow and learn and adapt and change um, and respond to therapy and what kinds of therapies help people in general, not just in stuttering. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking that this is the beginning of a more complicated book to write <laughs> because I'm not sure how we're going to divide stuttering into such discrete categories as we've done over the years. Once we realize how interconnected everything is, it becomes a huge problem for the table of contents. But as a scientist, it really does um, give me some faith that we're going to understand stuttering a lot more deeply and how to help people who want to be helped um, a lot more effectively. Nan, we have a son uh, and our son has autism, uh, attention deficit, which was the first diagnosis, uh, pretty severe ADHD and diagnosed anxiety disorder. And it's just this jumble of autism, attention, anxiety. And at the same time that we have a son with these issues, I have 
seven, eight, nine children on my caseload with very similar profiles at my school. Mm-hmm. And so these issues, this issue of autism is often coupled with other things like anxiety and ADHD. And I think about that coupling and I think about stuttering and all that comes with stuttering. So I'm just going to ask you a broad question. Do you have any thoughts on what I just said? Well, I think that the, the, we didn't talk about this, but we did talk about in the book that, um, stuttering has been renamed in, um, the International Classification of Diseases and the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Um, it's been renamed as Childhood Onset Fluency Disorder. Um, and one of the things that happened along with that, just to make it clear why I'm digressing here, is that it used to be inappropriate to talk about social anxiety disorder and stuttering because it was sort of seen as the same thing. Like if you have social anxiety disorder, well, why not? You stutter. And in fact, it made it impossible for many people to get coverage for dealing with those problems. And I think that we're beginning to understand that very few disorders are only in one area of function, they cascade into other areas of function, or they are comorbid, which is a terrible term, but it it does mean something. It exists along with um, a higher prevalence of other disorders. So yeah, as a, as a clinician myself, uh, the number of kids that I will see who, if they have one disorder that I've been able to diagnose or their parents saw it, and that's why they brought them in, um, that they have others as well. And I think that they're related both both functionally. In other words, if you have problems of certain sorts, it's going to elevate anxiety. It may distract you. But the other thing is that things like ADHD, for instance, is clearly a brain-based behavior. And if we are dealing with other brain-based behaviors, and we're talking about the important interactions among brain areas, it shouldn't be astounding that children who have one problem have other problems. So I think that, again, we're, we're moving away from cubbyholing uh, children as being children with X, as though you can always describe children who have the same primary diagnosis as being exactly the same. And we're into describing individual people who have very individual profiles of function and dysfunction um, or ease and less ease. And we have to deal with them on that individual basis. And as therapists or parents, that's incredibly daunting, right? That it makes our job much harder um, because what will work for one child will not work for our child for various pretty clear reasons. Um, And so that my feeling about this is that we're going to see more of this and not less. And again, being an optimist, my hope is that eventually, as we understand how these things interact, we will be able to develop more productive ways of tailoring therapy to the kid that walked in the door and not just um, a child lost in 100 children given a particular treatment such that we feel that any child can, can profit equally well from something just because the majority of children in some study conducted somewhere did. Um, Mm. All children are individuals and all all adults are individuals. And so our job is to figure out how to reconcile what seems to work for a lot of people with what is likely to work for the person standing in front of us. So I... I'm often reminded, because I'm friends with his mom on Facebook, of a child I worked with over 10 years ago who stuttered and had Tourette's. Mm -hmm. And he knew I was interested in both, and he was very open to talking about it with me. He enjoyed talking about it. And it got to the point in 
in therapy where he would stutter or say something that sounded stuttered and he would stop and say, yeah, I don't know what that was. I, I don't know if that was, and it was uh, exactly, we'd laugh. And, he, you know, he's was like nine and 10 years old. And it was so great to be able to have that level of comfort with, to see his level of comfort with talking about it. Um, yeah. And I think we've all lost that joy. I mean, this is probably completely off in the wrong direction, but when we stick my 19 month old granddaughter to bed, we can hear her practicing language in her crib. You know, she'll take a word and she'll just combine it with anything she can. She's learned that day, even though I think she knows because when she's awake, she grins at you. So she'll talk about a term like sneaky and she'll apply it to everything from the sneaky mouse in a book to a sneaky house or sneaky snow. Mm. Um, and I think that, um, um, we we need to have more fun trying to to experience the wonder of not knowing why things are the way they are, um, and um, I think that's what I got out of your anecdote is that, that we still should have a tremendous sense of wonder that when things work well that they do, and when things don't seem to be working exactly the way they they we'd want them to, that there is still not just frustration in it, but a sense of curiosity about what it was and how could we, how could we understand it better? Well, so that's, I'm sorry to keep this going, but so I was just observing because we're in a pandemic on Zoom and a teacher had a concern about a student who they think stutters. And so I showed up in the teacher's Zoom room and the teacher's the teachers are great. They know that when I show up, they're going to give that student many opportunities to talk. I was a little confused because there were two children who were dominating the conversation. And I couldn't figure out which one the teacher had a concern about with stuttering. And it was really a refreshing situation to be in. And it turns out the teacher was very specifically concerned about one of the children. But me not knowing which one at first, I was hearing a lot of speech patterns with a high amount of normal disfluencies. And I just thought it was interesting that that it took me a while to figure out which which child the, the teacher wanted me to hear. Mm-hmm. And did you decide that either one of them was a child who stutters? Well, this is a huge conversation. I will say this to you. I spent almost 20 years of the mindset that is a, and this is going to sound immodest, but as a skilled speech language pathologist, I know when a child is stuttering or not. Uh, let me say to you that in in the last few years, there have been a few times where I am not always sure. There are a few times that the child has a high level of normal disfluencies, some part, part, part word disfluencies that I actually didn't model very well there, more like part, part, part word disfluencies with no visible struggle. And I'm scratching my head saying, huh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I mean, you and I have had some private conversations about this, and I, I won't say I haven't had those moments either. I certainly, I think it's it's more a question of what information would help me make a better decision. Um, and I think that uh, there is a continuum which gets a little bit difficult to untangle between kids who have expressive language issues where they are repeating um, and revising um, and hesitating more than a typical kid might. And I tend to tend to be more confident that a child is stuttering if I see some more evidence that they're uncomfortable with their speech, that there's physical tension, that they are not happy talking. Those sorts of things tend to push me 
very quickly towards a view of that child as as having stuttering as their major issue, um, whereas the ones that are more confusing are children who seem somewhat oblivious to whatever it is that is causing the discomfort in the listener. Well, um, see, that's exactly the challenge. So you're asked to observe someone, a child, and they are not only happy to talk, they are trying to talk every chance they can. So whether we call the disfluencies we're seeing stuttering-like or normal disfluencies, there there have been a few times in recent years where I've seen a lot of disfluencies that are not accompanied by shame or struggle. I guess struggle's right. the big thing. And and that's the and so then even the so then you have the question of, well, in a public school setting, even if I were able to say the child stutters, what would be the specialized instruction? Like right. What- and, and yeah, this gets back to your basic question about, um, you know, looking at stuttering from multiple angles. If the speaker is perfectly happy doing what they're doing and it's the listener that's discomforted, what are, you know, what are, what's our view of this, right? And um, so the neurodiversity movement or people who will say more tangibly in our field, it's okay to stutter, um, are probably going to point to students like this and sort of say, what what is your goal for this student, right? Um, they seem comfortable. They seem talkative. They don't seem handicapped. I think that if one would want to do a little bit of probing using some of the children's projective measures like the kitty cat or something like that, just to be sure um, that they are uh, feeling unimpaired um, or unimpeded by their speech. But I, I think that there is an argument to be made that it's the kids' discomfort that should prompt us to bring kids into therapy and not the parents or the teachers. Mm. So I'll name drop here. I, I, I uh, well, you know, I'm not going to name drop, but I did speak to a very good speech language pathologist who immediately mentioned the kitty cat as well. Um, and I think in my mind, what I'm telling myself is in these type of situations, there needs to be, as you said, more probing and a lot more listening. Um, one thing I was struck by was because of Zoom, the child who may stutter, um, their sound was a little weird. So another child kept asking them to repeat themselves. <laughs> and and every time, and every time the child who may stutter was asked to repeat himself, he didn't stutter. In fact, he spoke incredibly crisp and fluently. And I thought, well, that you know, like that's what I do in, in an evaluation. I, I pretend not to hear somebody uh, because the listeners, just to make it clear, people who stutter, we often stutter almost on cue when asked to repeat ourselves. Um, so yeah, well, it's it, these are interesting questions, and I, I think, like with most of the questions on your podcast, you ask what seems to be a deceptively simple question, and then it winds up involving everything that we currently know or don't know about stuttering itself. Um, so I think that the question of how what to do with, with children um, who we can't classify is maybe to ask, what is our goal in classifying them? And so that if the child seems to have impaired fluency by some objective measure by the listener, but it's not really getting in the way of what they do, maybe we defer working with them on the fluency but we do want to be sure that we're not ignoring what really is a problem simply because the child has not articulated it to us or we haven't looked deeply enough. Yeah, those are all excellent, excellent points. 
So, Nan, I want to ask you a few questions about Lidcomb. I, I've noticed with the recent Donahue Lidcode study, which found that verbal contingencies may not be the me- mechanism of change, that some SLPs are doing a victory dance of sorts. Um, and among some, y- y- you could almost hear them cheer, Lidcomb is dead. And of course, on the other side of things, we've heard for years, some Lidcomb-trained therapists say things like, the only ethical treatment to do for preschoolers is Lidcomb. So I got to ask you, is our field in a healthy place? Well, I, I looked at that research with a different kind of sense. There was a certain sense of satisfaction because I didn't really ever understand how Lidcomb could be working. Um, as somebody trained in child development, I really wasn't sure how contingencies were going to be doing the job. And now it turns out that they don't do the job. And so now we need to look for how Lidcomb works because there does seem to be evidence that it does help some children. And now we've got to figure out how it does that so that we can build on those mechanisms of action to make more effective therapy if it's not the contingencies. But the other thing I never quite understood, and so I might be the wrong person to talk about this, is sort of what I took to be a zero-sum view of how Lidcom was rolled out to people, that they always wanted to present it as the best or the most effective or the only or the only ethical treatment for stuttering. And I've never understood any treatment that wants to position itself that way in any walk of life, because I think basically we always should be looking for multiple things that work well, because I don't think that one thing works for everybody. So I think that there was just a strange view of uh, Lidcomb and how it was rolled out to people and defended uh, to people. I've never seen anything like it. I even asked my husband, who's a physician, whether or not other people tend to sort of say, you know, this treatment is the only treatment you should be giving. Um, and usually people will not make that comment about a treatment approach unless there's absolutely no evidence that something else works or there's strong evidence that it absolutely doesn't work. So I think that there's a sense that people who were concerned that there was too much hubris or that they didn't understand how the program could work, that they're feeling uh, somewhat validated. But I think that we're going to learn an important lesson from this whole endeavor. We are going to have to go back and find the ingredients that make Lidcomb work, uh, which will help us. And I think that uh, possibly, and, and certainly I would advise, it'll be a long time before people come back out and suggest that whatever their therapy is for stuttering is the only good one or the only ethical one that they should be using. I think that's a very strong statement. And I don't think that it's necessary in order to promote something as an effective therapy. Hmm. So I, you should probably also feel some satisfaction that back in 2005, you rather politely challenged them to figure out what was working in their treatment. And I think it's kind of cool that they're taking that on. Yeah, I would have liked it to have happened more almost 20 years ago. I was an editor on many of their papers, and I kept saying to them, if it's the contingency schedule, why don't you alter the contingency schedule and find out that it changes the outcomes? I mean, I studied this sort of stuff uh, in child development, um, and they didn't do it. Now they've done it. I'm glad they've done it. I, I think it's 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 belated. I think that the data should have come first and the claims later. But, um, you know, science is like that. You sometimes uh, go down a path that doesn't turn out to be as productive as it could be. Um, and it usually teaches you something. And that's what I'd like to think is going to happen here. 
So I, I'm not a researcher. I'm somebody who cares a lot about stuttering. I'm a speech language pathologist. And when I look at the landscape, I have to wonder and I have to ask you, do you think Lidcomb is responsible for a bit of a preschool stuttering renaissance in research? And what I mean is, is the demands and capacities model that's our treatment that's coming from the Dutch is Palin PCI. Is this happening in part because Lidcombe has sort of upped the ante? Well, I think the Lidcombe researchers have upped the ante. And I think that um, they had to. They they were being funded by government agencies that wanted accountability. And so they had to document that what they were doing worked. And I think that's good. That's what we're looking for. A number of these treatment programs that have been rolled out over the years have not been funded by agencies that require that kind of accountability, that people have been doing them as part of just general practice. I think they've upped the ante for documenting what appears to work, and I think that's necessary. And I think evidence-based practice has done that generally as well. So like like I said, I, I'm an optimist. I think that the uh, very avid conversation over what constitutes a good therapy has been productive. I think it's going to lead us to a better place. Um, it, it also leads us to other discussions that I know that you've had about what should the outcomes of therapy look like, since in many cases, um, at least in older kinds of publications about stuttering therapy, either with kids or with adults, um, the focus has purely been on whether or not moments of stuttering decline which is a pretty um, unidimensional, one-dimensional view of what stuttering is. And I think we're learning that we have to document progress in many, many different ways these days, which is also a very important change in how we do therapy research. Dr. Nan Bernstein-Ratner, thank you so much for being generous with your time and talking to us about your work. Well, thank you for having me. It's always just so much fun to talk with you because I really enjoy all your many different takes on stuttering. And I think that the the Stutter Talk has a way of really deepening our discussions about stuttering in meaningful ways. And I, I really do enjoy being able to participate. <laughs> 